Back in 1992, I caught one of Bill Hicks's last performances in London before his untimely death. Bill's stage persona was that of a tough-talking, chain-smoking, hard-drinking misanthrope. He often talked about his disdain for the human species and about their terrible, terrible impact on the planet. You know, he referred to us humans as a virus with shoes. So here I am, years later, I've got kids, and I'm wondering about the kind of world I'll leave for them when I'm gone. I know our consumption is killing the environment, but what can I do about it? Well, I'm into digital. So, how could digital solutions empower me to reduce the footprint I leave behind and give me some hope for my kids' future? I'm your host, Kieran Hanway. And on this episode of LDN, I'm joined by Jason Barrett. Jason is the founder of Mondra. Mondra is a platform that allows food producers to monitor, improve and communicate the environmental impacts of their products so we can all make informed decisions about what we buy. As usual, you'll find show notes on our website www.ldnpodcast.com and you can follow us and say hi on Twitter at LDNpodcast. Please do subscribe and leave a review wherever you found us. Hi, Jason. Hi, Kieran. Hey, welcome to the show and thanks for coming and making time. No, thank you. Thank you for uh, for inviting me onto your wonderful podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Ah, thank you. Well, uh, especially thank you for making the time because I know that you're really, really busy uh, with Mondra, uh, which has just recently launched. But before we, we, we chat about that and about our main topic today, which is about using digital to drive environmental sustainability. Whew, it's easy for me to say. Uh, tell us, uh, tell us, uh, and the listeners here at the pod, a little bit about you. Uh, thank you, Kieran. So I'm Jason Barrett, and I'm the founder and managing director of Mondra. Uh, a bit about me: I've spent, I think, the last 15 years now working with largely private sector companies to build digital delivery teams uh, and build digital products that help them to be better at what they do. But typically, helping them make some sense of the massive data that they've got to make better decisions uh, and always geared towards some sort of commercial outcome. So how do we move faster? How do we take out costs? How do we make more money? How do we beat the competition? And um, yeah, two years ago, I sat down with uh, one of my great mentors, a guy called Santosh Kavetti. Oh, yeah. Uh, we built a business, uh, built a business um, before in, in the UK. And we said, yeah, what do we want to do um, outside of making rich companies richer, you know, what do, what, what do we want to do to bring our expertise and our teams to a more noble cause? But what, what about Jeff? But have you not thought about Larry Ellison and Jeff Bezos's yachts? Or Philip Green has got a lovely big yacht, but surely yes, he has another one, he mate. Does, he does have a lovely big yacht. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, speaking about the, the Amazon empire, um, if you look at uh, there's a guy called John Mackey, who's the founder of uh, of Whole Foods, which was, of course, acquired by Amazon. Mm, yeah. Very, very wealthy individual, um, although I understand that he pays himself uh, a pound a year to continue in his role as CEO of, of Whole Foods. Um, but he's also the founder of um, what he would call a, a, a movement around conscious capitalism. Uh, and it's the idea that you can take a much more conscious approach to the way that you run your business, a much more conscious approach to the impact that your business is having on the world around it and still do very well. And, you know, he is uh, a great example of someone who's um, adopted conscious leadership um, and has great. done very well from it. So great. So, yeah, so we sat down and we said, how can we be a bit more conscious in what we're doing? And actually, how can we help others be a bit more conscious in what they're doing? and address some of the world's greatest challenges and of course none greater than the environmental crisis that we face right now um, so you know however you cut it we are on a pretty dismal trajectory as a as a human species uh, if you look at the cambridge institute of sustainability they say that if the plan is business as usual or a do nothing um, plan then we will see food system collapse in the next 20 years 
Gosh. So, so what, what does that mean, food system collapse? Basically means insects are no longer pollinating, our soils are completely exhausted, climate change is out of control, um, such that uh, you know, we're seeing freak weather accidents uh, or conditions, um, and we're just not able to feed ourselves. And of course, by then, our population will be something like 10 billion. So, so yeah, absolute food system collapse. We are no longer able to feed ourselves as a species. So we'll be, uh, we'll be soylent green territory here. They're making our food out of people. Next thing they'll be breeding us like cattle for food. You gotta tell them. You gotta tell them. Well, yeah. I mean, who knows? I mean, for me, twenty years is, you know, it's. I, I would say that's not our trajectory because there's a huge amount of work that's going on, and, and the momentum behind um, transforming the food system so that we are more sustainable, whether that's environmentally sustainable, economically sustainable or providing secure um, food system that, that actually helps us have nutritious food at all times. Mm -hmm. um, a huge amount of work going on in that space. Um, but, you know, even David Attenborough, and his, did you see David Attenborough's recent documentary? I, I'm sorry, I, I couldn't bring myself to watch it because, um, well, I was a little bit worried it would make me really depressed. Well, you know what? Um, yes, I can, I can sympathize. And for me, um, I don't know if I was depressed. I was, I was absolutely startled at what he points to, which is a very similar outcome around food system breakdown, but he says 2080, where, you know, based on what we're doing today, we will be at a point where we can't feed ourselves by 2080. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we are in his own words, well on our way to extinction at that point. Um, and that's in, you know, if not in our lifetime, Kieran, that's in our children's lifetime. It is. It is very much. Well, we should be on Mars by now. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams. <laughs> we should. <laughs> we should be. Um, but you know what? Um, whilst I think that is quite a hopeless message, what Attenborough also pointed to was some very key um, opportunities for us to turn it around. But it will take drastic action. And it will take a systems-wide effort with everybody, including consumers, food producers, um, brand owners, farmers, policy and government, academia, all pulling together um, to create systems-level transformation. Um, and yeah, I think that's where digital innovation can, can actually play a key role. Okay. So, um, so tell us a little bit about how that would work. Or, and how does it work? So you've launched this product or you've launched, launched this service or platform. What, what does it do? Um, well, let me, let me take a step back and I'll, I'll, I'll give you the genesis of the company. So mm. I mentioned that I sat down with, with Santosh. Yeah, right. Yeah. And we started talking around, you know, where do we want to play a role? We, we had a look at what Microsoft AI Earth were doing at the time. Uh, some incredible projects. In fact, the one that really... Um, caught my imagination was the idea that you can use satellite telemetry to predict when elephant poaching is going to happen and get ahead of it. Right? Wow. Don't ask me how, but that was super interesting. So we started to have a look around what, what's already being addressed, what's not being addressed, where's the space to play a role. Uh, and we actually came across a study by Oxford University, uh, a guy called Joseph Poor and Thomas Nimacek. They did a five-year study, which is widely regarded now as leading science in its space, and what they did was looked at the environmental impact of food and everything that happens, we say, from farm to fork. So from the minute the land is cleared to farming the land to transporting, processing, packaging and retailing. Uh, and mm. so many great outputs from that piece of work. But the one that I'll share is that two products on the shelf in the local Sainsbury's can look the same, taste the same and even cost the same, but can have wildly different environmental impacts. Sometimes three, four hundred percent more. Gosh, gosh! Yeah. And and before we unpick that, I'm interested that you um you started off with from where the land is cleared all the way through to to consumption, um because presumably for so I'm given to understand for for say Brazil there's a lot of land clearance for for uh, agriculture, um so so what are the impacts there then? That's very interesting. I mean, those are our lungs, right? Yeah, I mean, I think this, and we'll get into the world of what we 
call LCA, life cycle assessment, um, I guess, as the conversation unfolds. Um, but what uh -huh. it says is that, you know, we are going to look at the impacts and the embedded impacts and, and everything that happened right from the point of land clearance, which is all too important in the case of, you know, um, let's say livestock farming um, in, in Brazil, where we know yeah. that, you know, the, the most of the most of the food's impact is entirely the result of, uh, not entirely, but almost sometimes 60, 70 percent, the result of the land that's been cleared um, and everything that's happening at that farm level, where the rest of the 30 percent is what happens afterwards. And so it's critical that we're measuring this um, when we're uh, looking at the performance of a product that we're um, choosing between, um, ideally through some on-pack labelling. And I think that's what that's what we're setting out to do. We're creating a platform and the tools for producers. So we're talking about farmers, processors, primary brand owners, and even retailers to be able to understand, first of all, the true environmental impact of their produce or products, uh, and then certify it for such at each stage in the supply chain, and then all culminating in a consumer-facing label. That means that you and I, Kieran, we can then make more informed decisions based on what's really happening in bringing that product to your plate. Um, and I think, you know, if you look at the world of eco-labeling, I think there's something like 170 food labels out there. Yeah. Many of them, I, mean, I don't know, what's your opinion with eco-labels, Kieran? Um, uh, well, I don't really understand the provenance of them. I think that, as you've pointed out, there, there seem to be quite a lot of them. Um, so who am I to know that that's a genuine impartial label versus something that's created by a manufacturer, I think would be my initial cynicism. Mm. Yeah, and you're not on your own. I think mm. we, 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 there's a notion of, we call it label fatigue, you know, there's so much ah. greenwashing. Yeah. So much greenwashing with those that are using it to their commercial advantage without really um, surfacing the actual performance of a product. Um, and some of them are very well-intentioned. Don't let me paint the, the worst picture because, you know, um, I think the problem is that right now there isn't a single standardised way of measuring and communicating sustainability through supply chains and to consumers. So what that means is that everybody's doing things in their own way. It means that we get a raft of different public declarations around environment, environmental performance. Um, and actually, and a key distinction um, is that many of them are about adhering to some opaque standard, you know, so they were able to you know, tick the right boxes to achieve a rubber stamp, which says I am fish friendly or whatever the, whatever the stamp right. is. Right. Um, but what they don't do is take the life cycle assessment approach, the LCA approach in understanding everything that happens. And I genuinely believe that, um, first of all, for a label to be um, truly informative for consumers and create the right demand for the for truly sustainable products, which in turn will create the right supply practices because we're not triggering the commercial incentives back up the chain for producers to actually care, um, I think we will struggle. So um, I'm a big advocate for moving to full life cycle assessment as part of uh, a labeling um, initiative rather than uh, adhering to a standard. So, a of, a, a, yes, it, it does. A lot of it depends, I guess, on the economics. You mentioned earlier that some uh, products, potentially, they could have the exact same price, uh, the exact same taste, quality, whatever, but one has a worse environmental impact than the other, uh, mm -hmm. and this can be represented in labelling. So, I mean, that, that, that's counterintuitive to me. I, I would imagine that the cheaper goods are the ones that have more cost externalities in terms of environmental damage uh, or treatment of human beings <laughs> involved in the production um, or whatever. So, uh, you know, g given that it's looking likely that the country that we're both in, which is the, the United Kingdom, is about to sacrifice its farming industry and its farming standards on the altar of, on the altar of Brexit, um, you know, there will surely be some kind of race to the bottom uh, that economically speaking as well with our economy as it is and, and we're in COVID, people are going to really struggle, I think, to maintain ethical purchasing or, or purchasing that respects the environment. Um, I think there was a, a line I saw in a movie once, morals, mate, can't afford them. 
Have you no morals, men? No. No, I can't afford them, Governor. Neither could you if you was as poor as me. Um, how, uh, to me, it's looking bleak, right? So what can we do? So you make a very valid point around the, you know, the underpinning economic model to support meaningful, sustainable food system transformation, right? And unless it stacks up commercially, it's just never going to fly, you know, particularly, particularly now given the economic downturn. Um, But the scene has been set like never before um, for us to take advantage of what's happening at policy level, what's happening with consumers um, and throughout private sector. Um, And if I can explain that a bit. So great. um, Yeah. So with Brexit um, now uh, changing, as you say, um, agricultural policy. So you have farmers now who soon enough will be able to access subsidies for the public good of reducing their greenhouse gas emissions. Mm-hmm. Um, under the old common agricultural policy, you were rewarded depending on how much land you had. Right? Yes. So that's a positive step. Mm-hmm. Um, but coming at it from the other end of the supply chain, you've got a world where consumers like never before um, are demanding truly sustainable. I think we are living in a generation where we are becoming so concerned with the uh, environmental impacts of our consumption um, that uh, consumer demand is is now driving um, the business case for uh, many f- food brands to make pledges to to improve how they produce. So you know you have Nestle and and um, uh, I heard yesterday we had Brewdog are, are now net zero. And many of these yeah. food brands saying, yeah, we are going to make an active effort to um, pursue more sustainable production and pledging for net zero. Um, I mean, policy itself means that it is the law for us to achieve carbon neutrality as a country by 2050. Um, And of course, with um, large enterprise now um, setting their own pledges to support that legislative requirement, um, we've seen this week alone, the British Retail Consortium, most of the big grocery retailers are in there, all committing to driving towards net zero by 2040. And what's really interesting about their roadmap is that they are talking about full supply chain accountability. So we're not just going to be on the hook for what we do under our own operational control, but we're going to go into our supply chains. We're going to measure um, our carbon footprint from farm to fork. We're going to achieve net zero products on our shelves by 2040. And I think that's super promising because what that then means is that, of course, brands processors and now farmers all have um, an incentive to to support um, that end game. Why? Because it's not just sustainable for the planet, but it's sustainable for business. So my first response to your your comment around the economic model is that right now, the competitive landscape is, is changing. And those who respond to the need to be more environmentally sustainable will be those that thrive and even survive Um, because if we have the right mechanisms in place, those that don't perform um, will no longer be competitive um, because that's what consumers are demanding. It's what policy is um, insisting on. um, And it's what the major food brands who um, who have such influence in our supply chains uh, are also optimizing for, uh, which means that there's a huge opportunity for farmers and everyone in between and to really improve and appeal to their customer. Um, But I don't don't think that's the full answer, Kieran, because I think um, the other point you made was around this assumption that the cheaper products are those that will be the worst offenders. Right. um, And actually, you have to pay a premium for sustainable. And of course, in the world of organic food, for instance, you do, don't you? You have to pay Mm -hmm. something like 30% premium just to eat organic. Um, And I think that's also what we're... Um, looking to, uh, to to change as part of the work that we're doing. There was actually a study in China and they took something like, and don't quote me on this, but something like 10 million farmers over a decade and by monitoring um, the way that they were farming, these are smallholders, right? But monitoring the way that they were farming and using pretty rudimentary digital tools to understand what they're doing um, the inputs they were using, the practices that they were employing, 
And then using that across the 10 million sample to elicit insights to understand how to be more precision in the way that we farm. So rather than using blanket fertilizers, we know that we can, you know, according to our locality and a particular climate and the conditions there, we might adopt a more precision tailored approach. Um, and this is the very fundamental nature of, you know, smart farming and precision agriculture. And really what they proved over that 10 year period was that uh, being more um, precise in the way that you farm and using data to inform uh, both your practices and your, your, your use of certain inputs um, was able to not only reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions and nitrogen, um, but also improve profits and productivity. Wow. Yeah. So wow. It, it is possible. It's, it's an inefficiency of our food system that the cheaper foods are typically the, the worst offenders. It really... And I, I, look, we're going on a journey, right? It's going to take some time for us to get there. But there, for is, sure. there, there is absolutely an opportunity to be able to provide sustainable food that doesn't send, um, you know, product overseas to come back to the person that sent it um, and then be used. You know, there's so many crazy inefficiencies that, that happen in our, in our supply chains, um, which we're just not tracking. And it's that lack of... Um, it's that lack of data, I think, that is undermining our ability to know where we are, how we can improve, um, and how we can achieve our net zero goals. Mm-hmm. So, so that's great in the context of food production. Um, I was looking at a report uh, this morning, actually. Uh, I think it it either came to my attention this morning or it was published yesterday uh, by an organisation called Production Gap. I don't know if you heard of them. Um, and they work with uh, elements of um, they work with elements of the UN Environment Program, uh, and they work on the um, basically using data from the emissions gap reports. And and here's basically the summary. Not in a minute we'll 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 do musical comedy and cheer the whole thing up. Um, but here's the summary: uh, to follow a 1.5 degree consistent pathway, the world will need to decrease fossil fuel production by roughly six percent per year between 2020 and 2030. Countries are instead planning and projecting an average annual increase of two percent, which by 2030 would result in more than double the production consistent with the 1.5 degree C limit. So, so in the global system, like as in the globe, but also considering the system globally beyond food production, um, it, it's looking bad. But it's fantastic seeing that you know it's fantastic to see that at least some nibbles are being taken out of the elephant. You know, they say the best way to eat an elephant is one bite at a time. <laughs> Uh, perhaps, uh, perhaps we can talk about these nibbles here that Mondra is planning to do, and and digital can help. So you've talked a little bit about farming, um, in in for those trial uh, engagements out in China. Um, what other ways can can digital help to quantify, manage, reduce uh, environmental impact of food? Um, yeah. So I think. If we look at the fundamental problem that exists right now, whether I'm a consumer, whether I am a producer, so farmer or processor, um, or indeed the retailers that stock those products, I just don't know the environmental impact of what I'm stocking, what I'm producing, or what I'm consuming. And if you don't know the actual environmental impacts, then you certainly can't optimize the way that you farm, optimize the way you compose your products, Right. Uh, optimize your way you stock products or indeed what we what we eat as consumers. And so fundamentally, the what we need to do is is and, and what we are striving towards at Mondra is is create a system where it's possible to know. And um, actually, if you if you remember in 2009, Tesco tried to put carbon labels on 70,000 products. Um, and as noble as it was, um, they stopped after three years because they realized it was going to take a century to complete. Gosh. Um, yeah. What, to complete labeling all the products. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, wow. now there's a few reasons for that. I think they had expected the other retailers to get on board with them and I think they, they didn't. So that certainly didn't help. 
Um, but more fundamentally, they were taking a manual approach to LCA, so life cycle assessment. Remember, we said it's the process of looking at everything that happens in the supply chain, yeah. farm to fork, and looking at the environmental impacts. And so, um, so yeah, so rather than a big retailer employing an, an army of LCA consultants to understand the environmental impact of the products that they stock, we think there's a much better system. Um, and that's what we're building out at Mondra. It's a, it's a, um, a set of tools mm-hmm. um, built on a common platform for um, farmers, processors, and retailers to be able to understand their, their impacts or the impacts of the products. Uh, and at the heart of it is self-assessment. So really we're using uh, automation um, and, and a bunch of other cool technologies which we can get into to help those very producers to be able to self-assess the product. Um, and uh, a bit like, um, you know, the way that you would self-assess your, your taxes at end of year. If you're right. Um, and actually um, radically simplifying what is a hugely complex process called life cycle assessment. I mean, to give you a sense, a life cycle assessment coming in, a, a consultant coming in to uh, run an assessment on your product, it's likely to take a number of weeks and ask literally hundreds of questions. Um, and, and I might add that the answer to those questions is often, it depends. You know, so it's, oh. uh, it, yeah, so it's a conversation. It's a, you know, you can ask two LCA consultants who are using different methods with different scope and boundaries, whether or not they would agree with something. You don't always um, get the same answer. Um, although there is some, you know, the ISO 1404 says that there's compliance um, uh, in, in place, but, but broadly it's a, you know, it's a consultant who leads it and it's their expertise that drives it. Um, and yeah, the bigger problem is that getting the data is just an absolute nightmare. So your consultant will work with you and your main suppliers, which is relatively pain-free, but then when you go to the next supplier in the chain and the next supplier in the chain, it very quickly becomes now impossible to get the data. Mm. Uh, either because it's unavailable, because they're not incentivized to provide it, they don't want to provide it because they're worried that they'll look bad. Um, or it's just um, just not traceable. You know, you can have these huge aggregators in the chain and then beyond that, who knows where they're getting their product from or how, how many hundreds of pea farmers are contributing to a single aggregate to stop you know so traceability is a real issue so how do you deal in mondra with bad actors so people submitting information that maybe makes their products look better than they are great question so um so yeah so the topic of fraud and gameplay is a is a, is a hot one and um you know in the same way that you would submit your end of year tax returns we have um, rules engines that help us to, you know, spot uh, anomalies, um, and uh, yeah, pretty rudimentary today. But over time, we're hoping to further employ machine learning um, to really strengthen anomaly detection. Uh, and we fully recognise that, you know, this will only really fly once we have the right data in place and the right systems in place. It will only really um, fly if we have the right governance and audit body to to sit to sit preside over it and actually we are in early stage talks with an ngo to do just that so i don't think technology is the only answer um, yeah but we are but we are taking a uh, a, a path um which is much aligned with you know, self-assessment tax returns um and also you know we're very much preaching a, an integration first um approach so you know just giving tools to farmers particularly is not necessarily going to work. I mean, we know from our, our, our work that farmers are quite frankly tired of new tooling and filling out new forms. And so everything that we can do at farm level and processor level to integrate with their existing systems, so farm management systems or at processor level production management or recipe management systems, um, not only makes the whole experience of, um, of data acquisition much more palatable for users, but it also gives us an opportunity from a verification perspective um, to, uh, to do more and, uh, and, and ensure that you know, we, we can reduce gameplay 
Um, so for instance, by integrating with um, recipe management systems, which are responsible for surfacing nutrition on pack, uh, we'd be very familiar with the nutrition labels that we see. Yes. You know, this is a highly regulated, highly governed, um, uh, uh, you know, policy-backed um, piece of the whole product development lifecycle. And so, um, yeah, we're not quite there yet, but we see that there's a real opportunity in uh, piggybacking on, you know, the very well-trodden path of nutrition labeling um, as part of our verification solution. Um, because that's the stuff that producers just or, or food manufacturers just don't mess with. You know, it's a, you, you, you literally get shut down if, if you're seen to be um, uh, fraudulently declaring, um, you know, on pack uh, declarations around nutrition. And we hope to, to leverage that as part of our environmental declaration model. Well, as somebody who, who always reads the back of a packet of crisps to justify having that packet of crisps, uh, it's reassuring to know that nutrition is so well policed. Um, yeah. Super. Okay, so people uh, people using the system, supply information. Um, there is some, or plan to be plan to be significant um, policing of those information uh, or those data rather. Uh, so then, then what happens? How does it become actually something that's on your product? Cool. So. Um so yeah, so the, what we have is a system where producers are monitoring, they are spotting opportunities to improve, which we can come back to, typically through benchmarking. So understanding that, you know, I am as performant, worse, better than the, uh, than the next producer of my, my type. Um, and then certifying that performance on the Mondra platform. So um, yes, we use blockchain to create an indelible, indelible record of product performance, and we require that um, producers are recertifying year on year or yield on yield um, in order to uh, you know, keep that data up to date. Um, and then we connect all of those certificates up through the chain, um, uh, culminating in a consumer-facing product label, uh, which to the nearest year is up to date in terms of its uh, environmental declaration. Okay, brilliant. Uh, we'll put a, an example label uh, with your permission on the show notes so people can see what we're talking about. Oh, yeah, thank you. Super. Um, so, yeah, and actually that's probably a point that I missed before um, in terms of how digital is um, uh, supporting uh, you know, the, the, the validation and verification. Um, clearly blockchain offers the, uh, the ability to um, act as a, as a deterrent um, uh, and indeed for audit bodies to be able to see what was actually declared um, and, uh, and they're able to verify that against actuals. So once actual data, you've, you've collated all of this data, you've got it all in one place and, and potentially labelling uh, is there. What, what can happen other than just letting consumers know and making those choices? How, how else can improvements be driven? Um, well, that's it. You, once we have the, 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 the actual performance data, and look, we completely recognize that the pursuit of primary data for every possible point in the chain is, is just not feasible. And of course, we do rely on secondary data or model data to fill those gaps. Um, but over time, we will be um, um, you know, improving the amount of primary data that informs performance scores at each stage of the chain. Um, and then that really allows you know, farmers to benchmark their performance, be able to um, you know, spot opportunities to improve their farm practices. Um, same with processors, who will be able to, um, on platform, recompose their products and immediately see what a different composition would amount to in terms of its overall environmental footprint. Um, and I, I, I don't know if I've, if I've said already, but the... You know, the environmental indicators that we look at, I know we've talked a lot about carbon and yeah. uh, you know, pursuit of net zero. Um, but if we do not in equal measure look at the crisis, particularly around biodiversity, then we are literally on a, a road to, to disaster anyway. I mean, we're already there. We're about to lose, um, I don't know how many millions of species through, if, if, if through inaction. Um so, so, yeah, so we look at greenhouse gas emissions, we look at biodiversity loss, we look at water pollution, um, 
fancy word for it is eutrophication. It basically is ah, yes. algae bloom from fertilizer runoff and farms. Um, and uh, and water scarcity or water usage. Um, and then we wrap all of those environmental indicators up into a familiar A to G rating um, uh, score, so that or a grade, which then so allows A being the best. A plus being the best. A plus being the best, okay. Yeah. Um, really then uh, providing uh, consumers with, with uh, a, a quick and familiar way to, um, to be able to choose from one product and another. Um, so we, we're very much preaching a, 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 a more, let's say, holistic or sustainable approach to net zero because we think that you know, carbon emissions or greenhouse gas emissions are not our, our, our only crisis to address. But we, you know, and again, going back to your earlier point around whether or not there's, you know, is this just a helpless systemic issue? You know, I think if we have a system in place that allows actual performance to be communicated through the supply chain and to consumers, um, we can all play a role in mm. every decision that we make. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean giving up our Sunday roast. It's just about picking the right Sunday roast, you know, and if that's all we did. Um, we would uh, be able to take out the top 15% of worst offenders who are responsible in food production for 70% of the damage. Wow. Oh, and yeah. it's, it's, really that, it's really that long tail yeah. is what you're talking about. So that yeah. it really is that disproportionately big, a small number of producers are causing the, the yeah. most damage. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. So we either need to... Um, edge them out of the market because demand insists on it um, yeah. or um, perhaps more positively speaking, encourage absolute um, change on their side because now um, to remain competitive um, and abide by ever tightening legislation, you have to, you know, but at the heart of it, Kieran is securing primary data through the chain certifications that are connected up um, and communicating communication, communication, uh, through the chain of two consumers. I mean, what we've got here is a failure to communicate. Um, and, and do you see uh, in, in sort of your vision for Mondra being, and, and this initiative, which is, you know, beyond, I guess, just a brand, but um, in your mission here, do you see there's a critical mass of uptake uh, that needs to be met uh, for this to really move the needle? Yes, I think that's a fair comment. Um, I mean, if you look at the world of uh, energy labelling in double glazing, for instance, um, that was a private sector initiative. And uh, yeah, one double glazier decided that it would be good to put the energy efficiency of their product as a label yeah. on their product. And um, it was good for business and others followed. Um, and over time, it was the only way to sell uh, double glazing because consumers loved it and they made buying decisions based on it. And then when 40% of the market was covered, that critical adoption um, point that you talk about, that was when policy stepped in and said, right, we now need to make it um, absolutely mandatory for energy efficiency on double glazing to, um, to happen. That, that's and, fascinating. So you're saying that the private sector led uh, the uptake of a standard and that to, to a certain tipping point. And then at that point, government stepped in and made it a mandatory requirement. Yes. Yeah. And that was... Um, That's brilliant. I think it was a 10-year journey to get there. Now, we believe that it'll... Uh, I, let's say I hope that it won't take 10 years. Um, and actually, we're already seeing murmurings of, of policy that are of, of their own volition um, going after this. So, you know, in the House of Commons a couple of weeks ago, we saw Chris Grayling, MP, who, um, who tabled the topic of environmental labelling and food. Um, and we would, you know, we look forward to seeing that get passed through the House of Commons and Lords, but who knows if it will. I mean, these things take years normally, but... Um, but it's Chris Grayling. About, you know. um, <laughs> sorry. Sorry, say again? I said, well, it is Chris Grayling. <laughs> Best <Right>. of luck. <laughs> Um, well, I, I believe we've actually reached out to Chris through a mutual contact. And I'm, oh, I'm, yeah. yeah I'm I will say no more, Jason. Well, yes. No, I, I, I commend Chris for, uh, for, for you know, banging the drum for what is literally mission critical. 
Yes, yes. I mean, I mean, at a European level, there's a farm to fork strategy which speaks about environmental labelling. And I think for me, it remains to be seen what how the UK's own environmental labelling policies will evolve uh, in line with that or, or, or not, who knows. Um, but I think we do need to consider that, you know, as our largest export destination, it would make sense to have us the same labelling scheme um, with the with Europe. Um, and uh, yeah, I think, yeah, so so whether I'm hoping that we do not need to wait 10 years. I mean, as, as we mentioned before, the British Retail Consortium, so um, all the well, most of the major grocery retailers are saying that they want to surface environmental or at least climate change information on pack in the next five years. Um, so that's when you're really starting to see the critical mass uh, that we so desperately need. Um, and we really hope the policy can catch up. It'd be amazing. What an amazing, uh, what an amazing mission, Jason, to get out of bed and then know that you're, you could potentially be part of making such a massive contribution uh, to the future. Yes. yes. No, I'm, uh, I'm very, I'm very grateful for that. And um, yeah, I think the, the team are also, you know, equally motivated um, because of the cause, uh, but before anything else, and that just makes coming to work an absolute joy. Brilliant. So how can people find out more about Mondra and and about what you guys are doing? Uh, well, the obvious one is, is our website, so www.mondra.com. Uh, okay. Put a link to that in the show notes as well. Thank you. Thank you. And of course, I can be found on LinkedIn, um, Jason Barrett. Super. And yeah, we'd be very pleased to hear from anyone who um, either just wants to hear more, um, partner with us. You know, we have a fantastic consortium, um, including, you know, NGOs, academia, lots of um, you know, private sector, uh, sustainability startups that have complementary offerings. We absolutely recognise that we won't get there alone. Um, so we are always happy to, to hear from those who um, share a, a, a common goal and um, uh, any opportunities for us to team up. Fantastic. Um, so, you know, I, I often go through a load of regular questions with our guests, um, hopefully not a surprise. Are there any particular digital leaders you look up to? Digital leaders. Uh, well, look, I know it's a bit of a cliche, but it, I can't not talk about Elon Musk and the great stuff that he's doing. I think mm -hmm. you know, inspirational and uh, yeah, maybe we will get to Mars. Um, uh, but no, a bit more so close to home. And um, yes, not surprisingly, actually, because I know that they were both on your podcast a few weeks back, Arif and Kuhn, so Arif Harbert and Kuhn Mulligan, who are the yes. authors of the Hero Transformation Playbook. That's right. They were on, uh, I think, three episodes ago talking about Hero uh, just, right. just before it launched. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. So, yeah, so Arif and Kuhn are um, two of my... Uh, Two more of my mentors. Um, I've got a few, um, and yeah, no. What I really like about what they've what they've created with Hero is this kind of ruthless focus on creating value um, at an enterprise level for whatever you're doing. And I know that at the highest level, we at Mondra, of course, we're a purpose-driven company. We're all about an environmental outcome, but it has to be um, commercially attractive for organisations, or we just won't get it at the scale it needs to be in time. So, yeah, so working with the HERO framework, um, as we run programs with our clients, as we tend to, mm -hmm. um, we, yeah, we, we set it up in, in exactly that way. We get very clear on what the transformation outcome is from not only an environmental perspective, but from a commercial perspective. So what are the, you know, what are the bottom line results that greening our supply chain could actually yield us and working through um, a, a, a bunch of initiatives to get there? Recognizing that the CFO who is signing off on the program is, uh, you know, we know that their mantra is often "Show me the money." Show me the money. Yeah. Um, so, um, so yeah. So tying back, always tying back our uh, our environmental um, traceability initiatives um, to a commercial outcome for the organization is really helping. And at the heart of that is the is the hero framework. So, um, so big shout out for those guys. And yes, shameless plug, if you haven't already read Hero Transformation Playbook, check it out. It's, uh, it's a game changer. 
Absolutely. I, again, I'll link that book in. Uh, it's a fantastic book. Um, brilliant. Um, it, what about trends then that we should be paying attention to? Trends. Uh, so I don't know if it's I don't know if it's a trend yet, but I have been approached over the last few weeks by a number of companies um, who are all interested to know about the carbon footprint of their IT infrastructure. Huh. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So again, this is obviously a, a knock-on effect of large enterprise making pledges for net zero, many of them doing more than the bare minimum to, to get there in measuring their enterprise footprint and actually looking at the role of um, carbon efficient IT service provision. Um, and I think, you know, if you ask uh, Amazon and, and Microsoft, they would, of course, um, share that cloud um, infrastructure is infinitely more energy and carbon efficient than, than on-prem. Um, but I think there's probably more to the story, recognizing that you know, not all cloud providers are the same. And I think it really depends on what you're using uh, the cloud for. Um, and yeah, I don't, I, I, I don't have the answer, but I think it's an interesting trend to watch, one that I will yeah. be watching around. How do we actually, you know, in our, in our efforts to reduce um, energy, sorry, cost and improve security and availability. Actually, how can we simultaneously also measure our carbon footprint? I think it's a really interesting space. Right. Yeah. And I guess uh, efficiency, uh, marginal gains and efficiency versus exponential growth, I think is always going to be a challenge. Um, so, so it's great that there are these, there are these considerations in cloud, but of course the amount of data we create and consume is growing exponentially. There was a, a interesting piece in the news today, actually, as it happens. Um, so we're at the beginning of beginning of December, rather, uh, about work that um, can be or things and initiatives that can be taken by consumers of data to reduce their carbon footprint. So if you're going to watch a movie, watch it on your phone in standard definition, not on your TV in high def. If you're listening to music, uh, listen to music, not to say a YouTube video in the background because all of this bandwidth is being consumed and putting loads on centers and then scaling up, um, which I thought was was quite interesting, really. Mm. Um, that now we're applying all of this thinking to what we used to think was an infinite resource, right? Right. Yeah. Um, and it's just not, you know, that's no. the thing. It's so easy. I mean, I don't quite know... Uh, the statistic but it, there was a there was a documentary on the tv the other night which said that when i think it was ronaldo or someone similar when ronaldo posts a video to 20 million followers who all watch it um it's equivalent to and then they showed a map of the world and blocked out a country you know so they oh my goodness orders of magnitude at country level and i couldn't say for how long we were powering that country for this this post but but you get the idea it's staggering Absolutely. it is don't think about it at all no no, no, we don't. We don't. I guess on the plus side, just trying to add a little bit of levity, uh, the fact that we're all locked down and not travelling around so much. Um, I don't know. Mm. The, the, the air has never smelled sweeter. I've yes. really noticed it. Agreed. Agreed. I think that's that's a fair comment. I think, you know, the push for remote working um, is uh, is definitely supporting a more, you know, environmentally friendly um, you know, city life. Uh, I would agree. I would agree. But um, yeah, it'd be interesting to see how much we learn from this whole experience and whether or not uh, we go back to business as usual or if we're actually able to take some learnings away from what's been a incredibly tough year for so many. Um, and, um, you know, for the, for the first time, recognise that we don't live with infinite resources um, uh, and that we do have a significant impact on the natural world. And that can't carry on forever. No, it, it absolutely can't. Uh, and just to wrap, so uh, who has inspired you most or impressed you most recently? Inspired me or impressed me? Uh, I, I'm not sure. Um, I th do you know what? I think I'd have to say my fiance, Sabrina. I think, um, you know, the last two years, uh, if you've ever launched a business, and I think you, you've had a couple of businesses in your time, haven't you, Kieran? Uh, I've, I've worked for, I've not owned. Uh, 
Right. Well, the, the whole world of startup is all consuming. And um, yeah, I've just been so incredibly busy over the last t- two years that without sub support, it would have been would have been yeah much tougher. And she's been uh, she's been fantastic. So she continues to impress me, um, putting up with my crazy work hours um, and really allowing me to, uh, to, to do something which gives me so much fulfillment and, and joy. Uh, and for that, I'm very grateful. So, yeah, I'd have to say Sabrina. In fact, today I consider myself one of the luckiest men on the face of the earth. Oh, mate, that is, uh, there are about a million brownie points going your way right now. I know she's listening. So. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me of the st- a story I heard of uh, Hillary Clinton. So somebody said to uh, Hillary Clinton, you know, you know, there's that aphorism, uh, cliche, behind every great man is a great woman. Yes. Uh, so somebody said to Hillary Clinton, yeah, well, uh, what if you'd married a dustman? What would he be doing then? And she said he would be the president of the United States of America. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, um, so Jason, thank you so much um, for for coming on and sharing this amazing perspective uh, that that's really opened my eyes to how you know, the intangible, unreal world of digital can really make a real world positive impact. I'm really, really looking forward to, to seeing uh, the journey of Mondro over the next couple of years. Uh, it'd be really great to have you back on maybe uh, in a year's time or, or whenever seems right to share the progress of the, the brand, the initiative uh, and the impact uh, that you guys are having. It would be really, really wonderful to have you back on. Um, yeah, I would, I would love that, Kieran. Thank you. Um, yeah. And yeah, thanks so much for uh, for inviting me on. Um, it's uh, you know I think it's the, the the third podcast I've done this year, and um, yeah, I, I I don't always find them particularly easy. So uh, I appreciate um, yeah I appreciate the chance to to jump on and share a bit about what we're working on, a bit about a bit about me, um, and uh, yeah, I'd be delighted to come back on. Uh, as soon as uh, as soon as it makes sense. Thanks again, Jason. Yes. I was joined today by Jason Barrett, founder at Mondra. Go check him out at www.mondra.com. Well, that's it for today's show. What did you think? Please leave a healthy, robust rating on your podcast app and hammer that subscribe button. As usual, you'll find show notes on our website, www.ldnpodcast.com. And come say hi on Twitter. I'm at Kironi, and this show is at LDN Podcast. See you next time.